0: This is a presentation from Narara Valley Baptist Church, a church that's desperate for God and passionate for people. As John said, this is part two of a series that started this morning. So if you weren't here this morning, which a lot of you weren't, uh, you've missed part one. This is part two. Um... Part one is is going to be on the podcast, it's on YouTube, you can catch up later, so if you're like, I wonder what was said this morning, um, I do recommend it, uh, John and Christine did a little dialogue-y sermon-y thing, um, they had a couple of couches up here on the stage and they just had a chat, um, it was very, it was very PM-esque, it was very informal, uh, it was very conversational, I loved it, um, so do get into that. Uh, I'll give you a really quick recap, because I know some of you will be like, "That's not fair. We didn't know." Um, in chapter one of the book of Ruth, in a nutshell, uh, we've got these three women uh, and three men in the story, and there's a lot of names to remember, um, but they're all they're all related to each other. So uh, we've got Elimelech. He's a man. If you don't know. Better fill that in. It's not a normal name, is it? Elimelech uh, is married to Naomi, uh, and they have two sons called Marlon and Killian. And the four of them live in a town called Bethlehem that you might have heard of, uh, in a place called Israel. And there's a terrible famine, so they all pack up their life, and they go to a place called Moab, which is a fair distance away, Uh, especially, like, as the crow flies, it's not super far but you've got this thing called the Dead Sea in between. Uh, so you have to go around it. So it is actually quite a long way. Uh, they go over there to escape the famine, find some food. Uh, and while they're living there, the two sons, Marlon and Kilion, uh grow up and get married to two women who live in Mo- who Moabites called Orpah and Ruth. So they're your six characters. Uh, don't worry, you don't have to remember the men because they all die at this point in the story. Uh, all three of them, which is really tragic. Uh, for Naomi to lose her husband and both her sons, uh, and also tragic for these young women, Orpah and Ruth, to lose their husbands as well. And so there's a bit of deliberation about what are we going to do? Who's going to live where? And this is 3,000 years ago, so the big question for these women was who's going to support us? Because it was a really patriarchal society where the men supported the women uh, and were the breadwinner and were the head of the household and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and so, these women are really vulnerable. So, Naomi says, you, Orpah and Ruth, you two should stay here in Moab. You have family here, they can look after you. I'll go back to Bethlehem, to Israel, because I've got family there and they can look after me. It Sounds like a smart plan. It's pretty straightforward. There's just one problem. Ruth says to Naomi, as we just sang earlier, wherever you go, I will go, and wherever you stay, I will stay. Um, she decides that she, she's come to believe in Naomi's God, uh, the God of her husband. She's, she feels like she's married into this Israelite family and she's almost an Israelite herself and she doesn't want to stay in Moab. She wants to go with Naomi back to Bethlehem and so the two of them travel back home. So let's pick up the story there right at the end of chapter 1. I'm going, to read, I'm going to read the last verse of chapter 1 into the first verse of chapter 2 just to tie them together. It goes like this. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. Now Naomi had a relative on her husband's side, a man of standing from the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. The book of Ruth is this, like, Beautiful little short story, and it's incredibly carefully crafted. Uh, You can see uh, as you study it, you can see the kind of fingerprints of whoever the author was. We don't know, 3,000 years old. We don't know who the author was, but whoever they were, uh, they took a huge amount of care and precision. And these two verses feel a bit random. Like we just had this wonderful story of these women coming back into Bethlehem. And then we get this random detail that this is happening as the barley harvest was beginning, immediately followed by another random detail that Naomi had a certain notable relative called Boaz, who was a relative of her husband, Elimelech. Random, right? What is the barley harvest and this Boaz character, who we haven't heard of up until this point, what do they have to do with anything? Well, the author, as I said very careful, very clever author, uh, has, has set us up. We now have these two pieces of information, uh, especially that second one about Boaz, that the characters in the story don't have. And this whole chapter two revolves around what happens at the barley harvest with this Boaz character. So let's get into it. Off to a, a running start. Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favour. This single verse tells us everything we're going to need to know tonight about this chapter. These three pieces of information in this one sentence. Uh, Ruth is a Moabite. Uh, we want to be, the author wants to remind us yet again like we didn't already know that she's a foreigner she's not an israelite these aren't her people she's just come in from a foreign country she kind of gets a little bit about these israelite people because she's married she was married to one and been in the, the extended family of these israelites living in moab but to the israelites she is very much an outsider a foreigner to them and the author actually picks this up again and again and again throughout the chapter and keeps reminding us, kind of, it's almost awkward how often the author reminds us, she's a Moabite, she's a Moabite, she's a Moabite. Just call her Ruth. We get that she's a Moabite. But no, that must be important because it comes up again and again. The second thing is that she has this plan. She says, I want to go and pick up the leftover grain. Uh, now, that might not seem significant to any of us, Uh, living in the 21st century as we do. But there was an ancient custom that God had instituted in his law. It's in Leviticus chapter 19, if you like reading the Old Testament law. The reader that the author's writing this for should know this. Like, the people intended to read the book of Ruth knew the law really well. And so the reader doesn't need to quote the verses, but I'm going to quote them for us because we need a bit of context. Uh, This is what Leviticus 19, 9 and 10 says. When you reap the harvest of your land, this is the law, right? When you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field, or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Do not go over your vineyard a second time, or pick up the grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the poor and the foreigner. I am the Lord your God. So, Ruth's idea of going into the field to pick up any leftover grain that was left lying around wasn't entirely random. This was actually God's intention. The way that the Israelites were supposed to do their farming was they were supposed to be a bit slapdash, a bit rough around the edges, quite literally. Don't don't harvest all the way to the very edge of your field. Leave the kind of random bits along the side as they are. And when you pick up the grain, just pick up the stuff that's that you get the first time around, and if there's any that you've accidentally dropped or missed, leave them be. Leave them as they are, because I want them to be there to feed the poor and the foreigner. And Ruth is both those things. She's both the poor and the foreigner. Um, so as soon as we read let me go into the fields and pick up the leftover grain we go oh i see what's happening here and the third thing is this last little phrase in this man in whose eyes i find favor in anyone whose eyes i find favor um again seems kind of random why am i going on about this one little phrase but this is quite a poetic phrase even i mean it sounds kind of poetic in english It even sounds that poetic in the original in the Hebrew. It's a particular kind of turn of phrase that pops up all through the Old Testament. The first place it appears is in Genesis chapter 6, verse 8. That's pretty early in the Bible, six chapters in. Uh, Do you guys know about a guy called Noah? Had a big boat? Right. Uh, In Genesis 6, verse 8, before the flood... God's looking at all of the terrible people in the world and all the horrible things they're doing to each other. And then he sees this one man, Noah. And the author of Genesis 6, verse 8 says that Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And that's why he's saved from the flood, because he found favor in the eyes of the Lord, that phrase, right? Uh, it appears again in Genesis 19, 19, uh, when Lot is saved from the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, it's used again in Exodus with Moses. Sorry, Moses uses it four times in Exodus 33. Um, and then God himself uses it in response to Moses using it over and over and over and over again. And says, yes, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do. do you, uh, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. So it's kind of like Moses is saying, haven't I found favour in your sight? Haven't I found favour in your sight? Haven't I found favour in your sight? And God says, yes, I'm going to answer your prayer because you have found favour in my sight. I'm going to save this nation and these people. Again and again. Uh, Often in the context of God's salvation, of grace, of forgiveness, or sometimes it gets used of earthly kings instead of God, uh, like King Saul in 1 Samuel or King I can never pronounce this guy, Uh, Ahasuerus, is that how you say it in Esther? Thank you, I got a nod from the uh, senior pastor. These kings also, people find favour in their eyes. So yeah, I wouldn't make too much of it, except it's got that kind of poetic ring to it, and it appears again and again in this chapter, as you're about to see. So, the author must be doing something significant here. What is the subtext? Why use this funny turn of phrase in this ordinary context? You know, I I just said, pretty much every other time it's in the Bible, it's either talking about God and finding favour in God's eyes, or a king, finding favour in a king's eyes. And here, Ruth's saying, just whoever happens to be in the field I happen to go into to pick up the gleanings, I hope I find favour in their eyes. Why use this royal or, or God-focused phraseology? Well, I think that actually the author wants us to think she doesn't just need to find favor from some random. She needs to find favor from God. So, let's get into it properly. We're finally getting into it. So, so she went out entered a field, and began to glean behind the harvesters. As it turned out, she was working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. Remember him? The random guy who was introduced in verse 1? Well, here he is. Just then, Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters, The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you, they answered. Boaz asked the overseer of his harvesters, Who does that young woman belong to? So, here we have this random, seemingly random occurrence. There are all of these fields full of barley being harvested. And Ruth could show up to anyone's field. She doesn't know who any of these fields belong to. And Boaz isn't even in the field to give her a hint that this is his field. When she gets there before he does. And she's there and there are these men doing the harvest. And she just joins in behind them and starts picking things up. And the man who shows up, Boaz greets the harvesters with a blessing. The Lord be with you. And they respond, the Lord bless you. Here is this man who we are going to see uh, is here in the story to be a blessing. And so he asks his his overseer, his chief servant, who is that young woman? Or actually, he doesn't. He says, whose is that young woman? Uh, You see, in those days... The idea of your identity, this is going to blow your mind. In those days, someone's identity was completely bound up in their relationships with other people. In our world, in our society, someone's identity is something that they find for themselves as an individual. But 3,000 years ago, and actually in lots of other cultures around the world even today, identity is something you find in a community, in a family, in relationships, Uh, And that question, whose is that young woman, or who does that young woman belong to or with, uh, the answer could be who is her mother or her father. The answer could be who is her husband. Uh, If she's a servant or a slave, it could be who's her boss. Uh, But it's all these kind of relationships that she's in. And actually, relationships are going to become a huge theme in next week's chapters, in chapter 3 and 4, Um, And so it's almost like the author wants to put a little tiny hint at this point and almost say to the reader, what is going to be the answer to that question? And we might even sort of chuckle at him asking that question and say, Boaz, you don't know this yet, but she's going to belong to you. The overseer replied, she is the Moabite. There she is again. She is the Moabite who came back from Moab with Naomi. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the harvesters. She came into the field and has remained here from morning till now, except for a short rest in the shelter. There are those two things again, right? The Moabite, Ruth the Moabite, the Moabite who came back from Moab with Naomi. And the second thing, she said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. Pick up the leftover grain. So we've had part one and part two. She's the Moabite. She's here to pick up the leftover grain. What was the third thing? Hopefully, she will find favor in Boaz's eyes. We'll keep reading. See if it happens. You ready? So Ruth, uh, Boaz said to Ruth, My daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field, and don't go away from here. Stay here with the women who work for me watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after the women. I've told the men not to lay a hand on you, and whenever you are thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars the men have filled. At this, she bowed down with her face to the ground. She asked him, Why have I found such favor in your eyes that you should notice me, a foreigner? There it is. I told you. I told you that was going to happen, didn't I? Boaz replied, I've been told... All about what you've done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband. How you left your father and mother in your homeland and came to live with the people you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. May I continue to find favour in your eyes, my Lord, she said you've put me at ease by speaking kindly to your servant, though I do not have the standing of one of your servants. At mealtime, Boaz said to her, come over here, have some bread, and dip it in the wine vinegar. When she sat down with the harvesters, he offered her some roasted grain. She ate all she wanted and had some left over. As she got up to glean, Boaz gave orders to his men, let her gather among the sheaves and don't reprimand her, even pull up some stalks for her from the bundles and leave them for her to pick up and don't rebuke her. So Ruth gleaned in the field until evening, then she threshed the barley she'd gathered and it amounted to about an ephah. These are the expressions of the favor of Boaz. He showers her with favor. She uses that phrase, doesn't she? A couple of times. Both times when she thanks Boaz, she says, why have I found favor in your eyes? But look at how much he looks after her. He gives her bread. I mean, that wasn't in Leviticus that you had to do that, was it? Roasted grain, so much so that she had some left over. And he he tells his workers to pull some stalks out from the bundles and chuck them on the ground to make sure that there's enough left on the ground. Like, don't just be sloppy, but actually, like, intentionally pull things out to give to her. Extra. So much extra that she takes home an ether of barley, which is, I'm told, 22 litres of grain. Not like the whole stalk. After you take it off the stalk and it's just the grain, 22 litres. I don't know. um, If you buy, like, a bag of flour from Woolies... It's like about one litre. It gives you some idea of how much 22 litres of grain is. Uh, it's crazy. It's a big, big amount. So, that's a lot of favour. She carried it back to town. It was probably heavy. And her mother-in-law saw how much she'd gathered. Ruth also brought out and gave her what she had left over after she had eaten enough. Remember, she had... The roasted grain, and she had some left over, she brings that out too. And her mother-in-law asked her, where did you glean today? Where did you work? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. Then Ruth told her mother-in-law about the one at whose place she'd been working. The name of the man I worked with today is Boaz, she said. The Lord bless him, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law. He has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead she added that man is our close relative he is one of our guardian redeemers then ruth the moabite said he even said to me stay with my workers until i finished harvesting all my grain Naomi said to ruth her daughter-in-law it will be good for you my daughter to go with the women who work for him because in someone else's field you might be harmed So Ruth stayed close to the women of Boaz to glean until the barley and wheat harvest were finished, and she lived with her mother-in-law. And that's the end of the chapter. Naomi gets it. Naomi sees it straight away. As soon as she walks in the door with 22 litres of barley, she thinks there's something going on here. And when she finds out that the something is a someone, and it's her relative, Boaz, who took notice of her, the familiar phrasing took notice of her is basically the same concept as finding favor in the eyes of, even if she doesn't quite use those words. She's remarking at his kindness to Ruth and to Naomi and her kindness to the memory of Elimelech and Marlin and Killian. These are Ruth's people. He's showing kindness to her because he is showing kindness to her family, which is his extended family. He's doing what is right and good, but he's also kind of going one step above the requirement into kindness. So if I had to say uh, what's going on in this chapter, I think it's probably the third of the three things we pulled out of verse 2. You've got Ruth the Moabite, You've got her picking up the grain in the fields, the outsider, the vulnerable woman who doesn't have a husband, who doesn't have an income, who doesn't have any way of supporting herself and her mother-in-law, who goes into the fields to pick up the leftover grain. But the big thing here is that she finds favor in the eyes of Boaz. God provided for her, in a way, didn't he? Firstly, God provided for her by instituting that law in Leviticus in the first place, setting up a precedent, saying to all his people, if there are, if there are foreigners, if there are poor people in your midst, here is a way you can take care of them. So that's God. But also, uh, God provides for her in this concept of the guardian redeemer. Now this is going to take a little bit of work, a bit of Cultural background. Basically, let's see if I can do it really, really briefly. If you, in these days, were a woman who was widowed, or if you were a piece of land and the man who owned the field died, in both cases, they had this word uh, which is goel, G O E L, and the goel was the relative of the man who died, and he had rights and responsibilities after the death of a man in Israel. His rights were that he could buy the land and make it part of his land. But his responsibilities were that he had to marry the widow and have children with her, and those children didn't count as his children. They counted as the dead man's children. I know that's super weird <laughs> for us in our context, in our culture. We're like, wait, what? That's so odd. Um, but that's what they did. That was, that was the, uh, the system. And so that's why Naomi is so excited about Ruth meeting Boaz that day. Not just that she got lots of barley and we can eat, and that's great, but also that this man is their, their goel their guardian, their redeemer. He is the one who is required to look after both Naomi and Ruth. So God is a God of favor. God is a God of grace. And he's instituted these systems 3,000 years ago in this agrarian, ancient society to help them to provide grace and favor to the lowest and the least among them. God shows favor to the people who, in every other culture in that time, the people who were ignored or forgotten or pushed aside or even worse, taken advantage of. That is the God that we kind of see in the background in this chapter. The other thing is that I notice in this chapter Uh, is that it kind of makes me think of Jesus. There's a sense in which Jesus is, is the ultimate Boaz, right? He does a lot of the same kinds of things and has a similar attitude. Jesus came to seek and save the lost. Jesus was the one who brought God's favor on people, who needed saving and redeeming. He is the, the embodiment of God looking with favour upon us. This is the Jesus who we read in the Gospels talked about a shepherd with a hundred sheep who loses one and he goes out and searches high and low to find that one lost sheep. Uh, a couple of months ago... Uh, in this service, Josh preached about Zacchaeus. And Jesus, in that passage, says that the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Yet another time, Jesus spoke about uh, people who were hungry or thirsty, people who were a stranger, people who were prisoners. And he basically said, Those people are me. And when you care for one of them, you are caring for me. When you love them, you are loving me. That's in Matthew 25. It's an amazing passage. Jesus loves and longs for and cares for and even identifies himself with the people who are downtrodden, the forgotten, the needy, and the outsiders. In fact, he he got into a lot of trouble for doing that. I don't know if you've read uh, the stories about Jesus getting into trouble with the Pharisees. But one of the things that the Pharisees really hated about Jesus was that he spent time with the people that they called the sinners, the bad people, the people who were known for doing the wrong thing. He had a bad reputation and Jesus went out of his way to spend time with them and to love them. So I wonder tonight, I wonder what, where this sits for you, this story of God's favor, expressed in Boaz and Ruth and, and echoed in Jesus for us. Maybe you feel like you're a bit like Ruth, a bit of an outsider. Maybe you feel like you're not enough. Maybe you feel needy poor. Maybe you feel like you're not good enough. You're not capable enough. You're not doing enough. You're not in enough. There are all these other people sitting here tonight, and you're sitting here thinking, I'm an imposter. These are the real Christians, but I'm not, I'm not the real thing. Jesus has eyes of favor for you. He notices you. He loves you. He looks upon you with favour. They were the people he loved the most and went out of his way to show grace to. I want you to know that tonight, that Jesus loves you. And my second challenge tonight is if you are a follower of Jesus, if you know this Jesus and love this Jesus, the Jesus who loves the least and the lost and the outsider and the forgotten, the weak and the poor, if that's your Jesus, then are you being like Boaz? If that's God's vision for the world, What does it look like for you to enter in to that, to be part of what he's doing? What does it mean to you to live out a vision of love and acceptance? Accepting people like Ruth. Those of us who have something, anything, should use it generously. You know, Boaz had a field he had workers in the field. He had plenty, and he used it for someone he'd never met until that day, a, a stranger, an outsider, a foreign woman. He wasn't doing it to get something in return. He was doing it because it was the right thing to do. There was a need, and he could fulfill it. So how do we spend our time and our efforts Our strength, our influence, our reputation, our power, our money, our love, our gifts and abilities, whatever it might be. And it's going to be different for everyone tonight. But I wonder what is God saying to you tonight and prompting for you tonight? What is he saying? I've given this to you. Use it for me. Use it for this vision that I have for the world, my loving purposes. I get so excited uh, when I see this, this reflection of Jesus in a Boaz, like in this Boaz, in the book of Ruth, but also in my brothers and sisters here in this church, to see people who do what is right even at their own personal cost for the sake of loving the lowest and the least around them. So let's do that. Let's follow Christ's example and Boaz's example. Uh, let's receive the awesome and unconditional love of Jesus, and then let's be faithful servants of God by living that out generously and caring for those in need. Shall we pray? Oh, Lord God, Uh, We thank you for your incredible love to us, that you love us, uh, each and every one of us, whoever we are, uh, that we don't have to be enough or do enough, uh, that we don't have to be perfect for you to love us. Lord, that you come and find these lost sheep, that you seek and save the lost. Lord, I pray tonight that you would remind us again of that love, that we can sit and rest and be at peace in that and know that you look upon us with favour. And Lord, I pray that we as your servants would serve that same vision, that we would be people who follow the example of Boaz, to take what we have and who we are and what you have given us and use it generously for your glory and for your purposes uh, to love whoever needs loving, to care for those in whatever need they have. Lord, I thank you that you've positioned each and every one of us somewhere where we can do that. I pray you give us the courage and the boldness to follow your lead. In Jesus' name.